Hello, you're listening to Heroes and Headwinds. It's a podcast brought to you by The Culinary Edge. I'm Graham Humphreys, CEO at The Culinary Edge, and I lead a team of food and beverage innovators who, maybe like you, solve today's problems and create tomorrow's opportunities for food and beverage. This podcast brings you into the conversations that we have with our heroes in the industry, discussing how to brave the headwinds of an ever-changing and challenging F&B landscape. Along the way, we hope you'll get to know our guests as we have as friends, collaborators, and inspirations for a brighter future. Greg Dollahide is a four-decade serial entrepreneur in the restaurant industry who's led companies to realizations totaling more than a billion dollars over that time. He was an early pioneer in fast casual. He led the buyout of an early stage Baja Fresh in the late 90s, sold it to Wendy's four years later as a national chain. And then as the former chief energizing officer of Veggie Grill, Dollahide helped revolutionize the perception of sustainable plant-based cuisine. And his vision continues to inspire the future of conscious and fast casual dining. Um, it doesn't stop there. Greg's a former executive chairman and CEO of New York Stock Exchange listed Zoe's Kitchen, and he's recently led investor groups into Blaze Pizza and Starboard Chicken, where he's director on those companies' boards. And as you would expect, he's received a number of honors, including Mentor of the Year from Elliott Associates, and he's been in NRN's Power 50 two years in a row now. Um, We'll talk about this a little later, but his personal goal is to visit and explore 100 countries. While I, I don't know, Greg, how many of those have you made so far? 74. 74. All right. I'm doing the math. Well, encouraging people to live it up along their life's path. And we are thrilled to welcome Greg to the podcast. Greg, um, wonderful that we've made time for this. Thanks, Graham. Great to, great to have this opportunity. I, I appreciate it. And what you guys do at Culinary Edge is also just uh, fun to be a part of. I've helped companies grow twice with the help of Culinary Edge. So it's really fun. There's, there's the commercial for the day. Um, this is, it's been a minute, but thinking back, what first drew you to a career in food and beverage? Well, I kind of backed into it when I was uh, in high school. I started out working in a restaurant on the way to school. Um, I needed to buy gas. I had to, I had to buy a car, then buy gas. And, and so I started out working in kitchens. And uh, then once in a while, I'd be a bus boy. And that got me through graduation of high school. And a couple of the management team there were going to go open a restaurant in Newport. So for me, it was, okay, I can graduate high school, move to Newport Beach from the San Fernando Valley, uh, California. Sure, I'm in. So I went down to um, Newport Beach and opened this restaurant called The Ocean Toad. And uh, it, it was funny. We had this bumper sticker that says, give your lifts, uh, give your warts a lift at The Ocean Toad. It was back in the real corny days in the 70s, right? <laughs> but it was a steakhouse and I know how to, I know how to broil steaks and you know, run kitchens and the like. So at 17 years old, I was, here I was right in the middle of it. And uh, that led to numerous restaurant jobs, being a regional operator and almost getting a job at uh, Victoria Station, which was, I don't know, if before a lot of people's time, but it was a steakhouse that was done inside of railroad cars, started by three guys from Cornell. And w- one mm-hmm. of the founders I was interviewing with for a job at, uh, at the company, and he said, you know, I think you should go back and get your sheepskin. So I kind of looked at him. I didn't know what a sheepskin was. So I had to like process that for a second. 
And that led to one thing and another thing. And pretty soon I was able to get into Cornell Hotel School, which is, uh, which is just a life-changing um, you know, event. And I uh, graduated hotel school high enough to get into the business school and get my MBA one year. And then it was like, what do you want to do next? Because there was a big open uh, window as to where to go. And I ended up going to TGI Fridays as assistant to the CEO um, and stayed in the business. And I, I worked my way, we took the company public, worked my way up to CFO there. And uh, I had a chance to leave and go into the cable business. I thought about it, went to the last interview with the spouses. And the next day I said, no, I'm not going to do it and stayed in the business. And I've stayed in the business ever since. I've been happy that I have. It, it's, a, it, it's a wonderful business. I highly recommend it to people that um, learn this, the basic skills of it because it goes everywhere. Cruise ships, resorts, restaurants. It's just it's universal and is changing rapidly. But some of the tenants that mm-hmm. don't change that rapidly. It was like uh, in in one minute flat. We've gone from gas money to MBA to assistant to the CEO of TGI Friday. Um, <laughs> it's a standard story. But um, you know, I I was waiting for that moment where you know, like many people, actually find themselves falling into it at first. But there's a moment um, when they were in the restaurant that was formative that made the difference between bouncing out and saying, no, no, this is, this is actually where I caught the bug. No, that's a good question. That's a really good question. Uh, because there is that moment. And that moment for me came in Lake Tahoe when I helped build a restaurant. And I was not quite 21 yet, but I was basically running the restaurant. And uh, the general manager of the restaurant left for some reason. I can't remember why. And so the partner owner uh, kind of said, well, what do you think? And I said, yeah, that moment where you go, well, I can do what he did. <laughs> and I think I can even do better than he did. And there's that, I, I got this, I can do this. And so uh-huh. it, that switch flips. And uh, once that switch flips, it kind of, you don't go, that genie does not go back in the bottle. And uh-huh. so from then on, I, I was just like, how do I, how do I get more of this? How do I get more leadership, more management? How do I get more development? Um, and then I ran into a guy named uh, Gary Rogers, who did an LBO of Dryer's Ice Cream. He put down $100,000 and bought Dryer's Ice Cream. LBO is a leveraged buyout for those of us. Yeah, leveraged buyout. Yeah. yeah. yeah you're buying a company with its own cash flow. Uh-huh. And so I saw Gary do this in, in a company that was running a restaurant company. And I said, well, I want to learn how to do that. <laughs> And this is, you know, day-to-day restaurant management uh, you know, is a grind. Let's face it, from your time you're, I would do it at 17 to 26, I was just running restaurants while, while going to school and the like. And so um, I was ready to get out of operations, but I would never give up my operating days. Taught me so much, grounded me in the business, understand that the, you know, the tempo, the pace, the stress, um, everything about the business um, from the ground up. And so when I got to Fridays, I kind of like, I had that. I didn't need to do operations anymore to you know, move ahead the business. Yeah. It's interesting to hear how you got inspired you know, from the get-go. Um, more recently, where does your inspiration come from now? Uh, it has always been um, watching what's going on in the industry and, and getting ahead of the next wave or into the next wave. And, you know, as, as in surfing and in hockey, you've got to, you know, go to where the, where it's going, where the wave's going. And there was a woman a long time ago named Faith Popcorn. 
again, a name before most people listening, who um, was a futurist. And she came up with the concept of cocooning, which is now, you know, 30 years later called Hege out of uh, Scandinavia. But um, she was so prognostically correct in what she was talking about that it fascinated me and continues to, uh, too. And so getting in the next wave of the business, whether it was like TGI Fridays was clearly a next wave back in those days. And, um, you know, bigger, better burgers and, and, and the like are all about that next wave of, of what people are going to be wanting. And um, so that mm-hmm. always fascinated me. Like, how do you get ahead of this and let the wave give you the ride and not have to paddle so hard? And uh, I also get inspired by entrepreneurs that are making it happen. It's been just incredible to watch Sam Fox, Danny Meyer, Rich, Richie Melman, and others develop these great big restaurant companies with incredible food, great concepts, and uh, just keep doing it time after time. And that is an inspiration uh, because you can take that in combination yeah. with seeing where the customers are going and uh, really make things happen. Um, so th- and that inspires me. All that inspires me in the business and figured it out. Just figured yeah. it out. I love the three-level chess game uh-huh. of this industry. Yeah. And, you know, you've been quite the inspiration yourself to a lot of people. Um, I'm thinking about your pioneering work in the good food fast segment. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how you defined that and uh, what drove you to pioneer that segment? Yeah. Uh, thank you. The I was really leaving a segment. I had done dinner houses for a long time, uh, whether it, I was running a seafood restaurant chain, um, about a hundred million dollar chain and selling a hunted product. If you, you know, that was what we were doing back then. There was no sustainable seafood farming. And I was thinking, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got cocktail servers and bartenders and waiters out the wazoo. And, and this, this is, this is not a way to make money. Where's the future. And I had, I went to work for a Panda and for Andrew and Peggy Churing at Panda uh, as a consulting to help them get to the street with their concept. And the whole idea, because they did not have any uh, restaurants on the street back then. They were only in malls. And the whole idea of bringing food to the street in a completely different way um, really got my attention. And back then, La Salsa had just started and and the like. And and basically, what makes good food fast, which was what we call it back then, what makes it work, first and foremost, was women entering the workforce. So women entering the workforce with college educations and, uh, and real estate changes that were going on and the like. But clearly, disposable income from women entering the workforce was driving a lot of what was going to go on. And there was also a big stratification of the guests in, in previous to Good Food Faster, what became Fast Casual. There was fine dining, casual theme, and fast food. That was it. And so what opened up is this between casual theme and fast food, uh, there opened up a huge uh, strat- stratus that you could get into that had a number of uh, elements that were you know, just time appropriate. One was you were hearing mm-hmm. a lot of back then about the time famine, because as women entered the workforce, they had less time yes. and, and the like. So that was obvious. Um, food quality, fast food. We take it, we, we take it for granted now, but um, it's a huge change. You know, we can see that that was a huge change at the time. Yeah, it, was, it was a huge change. And then uh, food quality also, you could do a better job with food quality in, fa- in fast casual. I'll call it fast casual now because it changed from good food fast about 10 years into it. 
But this is my pitch mm -hmm. to investors was the, the, this pitch right here is that this new, this new uh, stratification opening is here. It's not going to go away. Customers, they want uh, high quality food. They want it faster. They want it without tipping. They want a lower average check and they want to yeah. eat in if they want or they want to take it out if they want. And it's not like. And the investors said. That'll never work, Greg. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, actually, just they said just the opposite, which is how I raised the money to buy Baja Fresh. Um, was exactly right. that. And Baja Fresh was an early entrance into that uh, that fast casual realm. And uh, mm -hmm. so you've got women entering workforce, you've got time famine, you've got all that going on. And the real estate wasn't really spoken for yet. People were used to doing big restaurants. You came along and say, I'll take the end of that, that center over there. And so you, chains like Panera uh, just blew up. Uh, the real estate was available. So all that made it work. And now you've got another, you know, basically uh, layering going on, even in fast casual. There's premium fast casual, like let's say Flower Child or something like that. And then you've got fast casual, which would be like Chipotle uh, and the like. And then you've got premium fast food, which would be like Star Starbucks Chicken and some others that are uh, saying, well, we can make it just about as fast as fast food, but, but much higher quality, bigger portions, fresher flavors, um, and not sitting under heat lamps. So that's, mm -hmm. that's going to be interesting to see how all that plays out. And I'm a big fan of uh, premium fast food and what I think it can do. So um, yeah. that's kind of like how it started, how it expressed. And then we did it again. We, so we did it with Baja. I did it again with different investors at Zoe's Kitchen. It was the same thing. And what Zoe's Kitchen was Mediterranean mm -hmm. food in the South, which is like, well, how does that work? But what it was is flavorful food and people were trying to eat more healthy. And so they kind of really lit up with women in the Southeast. And when I took over Zoe's, it was basically the dining rooms were 75 to 80% women. And so we, we changed the menu and the profiling and, and seating arrangements, things like that to attract a more, uh, you know, maybe more of a 55, 45 crowd or 60, 40 crowd. And it mm -hmm. really, it really blew up. So uh, and I did that work with the help of Culinary Edge too. So it was, um, mm -hmm. that, you know, to me, it, it's not going away. And as it stratifies even more and more, like fine dining is now, okay, there's white tablecloth fine dining, uh, steakhouse and the like, and then there's chef-driven fine dining. And it's not tablecloth mm -hmm. and it's more casual, open kitchens, things like that. But the prices are still high. It's enlightening to hear you link social change to industry change. And, you know, like, like, did, did you say uh, surf to where the waves are going or skate to where the puck is going? Uh, underneath it, the social change and industry change it makes me think that, you know, right now, uh, as practitioners in the industry, where we feel and we're, we're proud to be in a, a very what we think is a very transformational time in the industry, that this is a special time. But, you know, you, you've been here. Um, and you might have been here before. I'm curious, from your perspective, what are the some, uh, what are the, what are some of the recurring industry trends that come and go? Yeah. Well, uh, my favorite is labor cost. Uh, <laughs> it, it's just over four decades. It's like every seven to nine years we go through a oh my gosh, labor costs are killing us, and that that generates all sorts of activity. Um, some of it bad. Uh, first off, uh, working people where they're just up against it at the expo window where you've got the, mm -hmm. the headline cook and the expediter across the counter yelling at each other and everybody's going nuts. And, 
and uh, you know, it gets into those kind of situations. Then it's too stressful a job and people don't stay in it. There is the, I'm going to cut the front of the house. We don't need all these front of the house people. Cut the front of the house, and uh, you know, because they're they're easier to cut mm. than the kitchen people, right? And uh, and let's cut their hours. What is you know, all that goes on? There's also uh, we're going to get rid of the dining room servers. We'll have uh, these well, like the concept stacked. Well, we'll put these uh, tablets on the table. People can order and, and, and close mm-hmm. out their check when they want. And uh, so so mm-hmm. and that leads to a tech emulation concept we can talk about later, but. Basically, labor costs is one of them. One, one bad habit it leads to, though, is buying out of food. And um, a lot of the chains, they, uh, they get to this point where the accounting department says we have to you know, reduce labor. And then they say, well, we're going to go have, oh, this sauce can be made just as well by XYZ in, uh, in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And so XYZ makes it. And, of course, it's got you know, all sorts of stabilizers and, and the like in it. And it doesn't taste right. It, it, it not probably not good for you, and it doesn't taste right. And so then you have this mm-hmm. what I call gray food. You know, put the back of the house full of gray food, fresh from the freezer to the fryer to you. And uh, gray food kills restaurant concepts. I can't tell you how many big chains like Hands, Bennigan's. I got on a list of sit-down restaurants. But they didn't make it for other reasons, but they definitely made, didn't make it because they were putting out gray food. And the ones that survived realized that uh, that was a mistake and they got out of it. Another uh, rec- theme that happens mm-hmm. uh, has been is, is commissaries. Uh, commissaries have come in in our fashion, you know, I can't tell you how many times, uh, where uh, it, it's just a siren song of efficiency that we're gonna have a commissary. And long, many, many years ago, Jim Collins, mm-hmm. who was running Sizzler, which was what, once a very big company, um, he got out of the commissary business and I, I was able to, fortunate enough to have lunch with him. And Jim said, you just, there's too many problems, and uh, we talked about some of those problems. One of which is, mm-hmm. if the commissary doesn't make it right, you have 30 restaurants where it's wrong, or 100. Also, if mm-hmm. the commissary lets us sit mm-hmm. around too long, now you've got 100 restaurants with old food, and the general manager can't reject it. It came from the commissary. It, it's corporate. You got you got to use it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, that siren mm-hmm. song uh, has crashed a lot of, a lot of ships. And any time you move the people who are preparing food away from the people who are consuming food, you lose that feedback loop of the people who are preparing food getting the fulfillment and satisfaction and motivation of seeing their food enjoyed. Yeah. And that's what's going to happen in this industry. Another recurring trend is really good food is going to get more and more expensive. Uh, so I, yeah. that, that hasn't gone away. Uh, another one is uh, corporate conglomerates. Back in the 80s, um, I, I remember this, this, uh, this gentleman who was well-respected in the industry was going to start uh, a new company called Diverse Foods. And it was three or four concepts under one roof. And again, the siren song of shared accounting, shared marketing, shared HR. And that was back in the days when you didn't have what we have today, the technology and Zoom and all. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, that sort of all came together and all fell apart uh, over time because the people running each of those concepts didn't feel they had the autonomy to really run the concept. And I think if mm-hmm. you're, this industry is full of entrepreneurs, the ones that really get it done are the entrepreneurs. Um, and you can go city by city. Every city has a great restaurant entrepreneur with numerous, um, numerous restaurants. And usually they come from mm-hmm. uh, original sources of, you know, of major chefs, you know, Daniel Balut has spun off how many people and, you know, you go down the list. So, um, but this conglomerate mm-hmm. thing is one of those trends that 
like now it's back in fashion. Like you go to Mighty uh, MTY up in Canada, they have what sixty concepts or something yeah. like that. I think eighty. I think they got eighty and change. So you know, pretty soon all eighty of them are using the same PR firm, the same advertising agency. I mean, you can't help yourself. Yeah. If you if you're the CFO of that company, you just can't help yourself and say, here, use these guys. Right. And uh, and I, I think yeah. that that's going to blow up over time again, uh, other than for really simple concepts. But you know, you, you don't see uh, major IPOs of, of really successful restaurant concepts like. Shake Shack and the like; those aren't conglomerates. You know, they're they're one concept. People can understand it, and people can invest in it, and you can grow it and blow it out like Chipotle and go down the list. So, you know, what the power of a big idea. You know, I, I uh, it's great to hear you talking about all of these different commodifications, right? Um, that come and go. You're talking about the labor costs that are killing us, and that comes and goes. About cogs and reducing the cogs and you know replacing ingredients with poorer quality you've been you know also commodifying distribution with commissaries and yes you know we hear a lot about that as well and it's not always the right idea sometimes it is you've got to do the prep you've got to um um create it on site um the the answer to some of these you know these are all coming from commercial pressures these are all coming from the cfo as you said and the industry answer right now, National Restaurant Show and other places is, well, it's technology. We're going to be able to automate this. Uh, how do you see technology changing the industry? Um, perhaps while also emulating some of these basic tenets. Well, it's coming. And it's it, that's one of those things that fascinates me is how this technology is going to play out with, with the guest. Because uh, I, I, I'm very excited uh, about... Uh, ordering and the AI ordering uh, interface. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that people would rather talk, most of the time would rather talk to a, an empathic machine than a person who gets it wrong. So um, I, I think this this large language model ordering where you just go, hi, oh, Burger King, yeah. Uh, are you the one on uh, Main Street? Yeah, okay. I, I want this, this, do, 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 do. And thank you very much. And mm-hmm. you're driving along and it's just done. It's like, that's going to happen to Waze and Google, like in Waze. Why should you have to type in your destination? You should be able to say, I'm going to this address and Waze takes you there. And so uh, mm-hmm. that's going to be the biggest mm-hmm. interface that I think is going to be exciting. Uh, it, so I'll call it frictionless ordering, where it's everywhere all the time yes. and uh, the like. The second is going to be robotics, but it's going to depend on... Um, obviously how it's used, but obviously how hard it is to keep going, how hard it is to clean uh, and the like. I saw a very interesting Mm -hmm. presentation the other day by a technology group who are working on an ability to do bowls and the bowls slide across a very long counter where what the team member does is fills the bins and the bins are accessible to the team member as well. So the food going into the bowl comes out Mm -hmm. the bottom and, but they can still do custom bowls off the bins at the top, the food bins. Uh, very clever, mm-hmm. very well done, and can certainly produce a lot of bowls. But I've seen those concepts uh, a couple of times. The most recent robotic concept just closed its doors the other day, Zoom Pizza. And, uh, and, and more are going to happen. It's going to be for very simple things. And my question is, are customers ready mm-hmm. to pay more for something they know that was produced by uh, you know, a, a robot? Now, 
in an airport, I'd say yes. I think the you know the robotic coffee thing they have one in San Francisco. It's, it's fascinating. Uh, is it as good as Starbucks? No. Yep. Um, does it give you any romance? If robotics ends up giving you an automat, okay. Well, Horn and Harder did that 50 years ago in New York. You know, put in your money, open the door. Here's your hot food. Um, so, and that didn't that didn't stay. Okay. There's something about that that just goes against food because I'm putting this in my stomach. I'm putting this in my body. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I don't think robotics are, you know, the cause so web in suburban environments. I think in urban environments where the pace is much faster, just let me grab a sandwich and go. Um, yeah. However, those sandwiches are also getting better and better at places that already have the sandwich pre-made. Mm-hmm. And so now what am I doing here? What, what's what problem am I solving? So we'll see how robotics does. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued by it. I really am. Yeah. Um, I think where, where technology is also going to pick up, though, and this is, um, th- there's a couple ways to look at technology. What is it doing that people already want? And uh, what is it doing in the future that they don't know they want yet, but when they see it, they're going to want it? So yeah. one of those in the future, I'm going to want it when I see it, I think is going to be what, I, what I've been calling food sticks. That literally, I have my personalized uh, health information on my food stick or on my phone. And I walk up mm-hmm. and I go to, you know, Health Nutrition Inc. Uh, and plug it in, and it says, "Oh, the items we're serving today. These are the five we recommend for you." Okay, mm-hmm. and you know, and whether you're keto or gluten free, or those are simple. I'm talking about where you need more vitamin K, vitamin C, and D, and so it, it starts to that information. It plays to what is best for you. That's mm-hmm. coming. I think you it's know programmatic. It's yeah, yeah. Um. And uh, food always on. Basically, it's like I can get food 24 hours a day. I don't have to go down to the grocery store and get some pizza that's been sitting in the you know, hot well for 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, food mm-hmm. always on. High quality food always on. Delivered now is definitely coming, uh, especially to urban. So I think that's exciting. I can get quality food, you know, late at night because of my work, uh, you know, situation or whatever. But yeah. the other stuff that the tech's trying to do is try to emulate things that have been going on a long time. Like, for example, loyalty. I think guest loyalty is kind of interesting. I used to be mm-hmm. a bartender. And as being a bartender, loyalty had to do with, hi, hey, welcome back, gin and tonic, right? Yeah. And so you got to know the guest. So there was a contact and the guest was loyal because they had, um, they had contact with you. Uh, another example of that is we had a restaurant called Daltz at Fridays. And Daltz was in West Miami. And we weren't doing well. We really weren't doing well. And this, this new general manager came in and said, well, I don't want you not doing well. You're not, you're not appealing to, to what the guests want. I'm like, what do you mean? So he, uh, he ended up just working in the dining room, saying hello to everybody, and giving them something free. Give them a free dessert, give them a free bagel, give them free whatever. Okay, And built the sales, doubled the sales literally within a year, um, just by walking the dining room, making connections, buying them food, and giving them what they wanted. And so loyalty is trying to emulate that with, tech, with uh, you know, with apps. And mm-hmm. okay, got it. Depends on the concept. Maybe Dunkin' Donuts, a free coffee is really important. But uh, you, you'll see loyalty kind of like grow to a certain size in a company and then it caps out. If people don't want to use the app, they don't care about the loyalty, they don't want the points. And, mm-hmm. But they do want to be recognized. They do want to give the same food consistently and, and the like. That's, you know, what, what, what I what I was thinking for some people like the free cup of coffee, you know, for some people a free cup of coffee is important, right? Every dollar counts. For others, um, the time counts. You know, they don't have the minutes. 
and the convenience and the seamlessness of having something you know there ready for you just in time in your routine and taking steps and touches out of the routine is you know that's where the value is and i think that's a significant i think that's a significant piece of stickiness for the starbucks of this world and others who are getting the app experience right you know dutch brothers as well Oh, D Dutch is, I'm a shareholder of Dutch. I think Dutch is just amazing. However, I will tell you other uh, people that I know that uh, will go to uh, like a sweet green and they won't go through the app. It takes too long to go through the app. They just go mm -hmm. down to the, uh, to the place and get a salad. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm dead serious. So I think you really have to figure out, you know, um, yeah. how this optimizes guest experience and you lose guest touch. Um, you know, what I find fascinating is you go to a restaurant, if they have all this technology, you go to the restaurant, you eat and leave. And, you know, on the way out the door, we used to always train people, thank the guest, say, thank you for coming in. And well, you know, and then say, welcome back. And like, okay, sell, say those things. It reinforces their habit. Um, we don't, we don't say thank you. I mean, there's a lot of places where you go to a restaurant and use their app or whatever, and you don't get anything later that says, thanks for dining with us or anything mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. We just kind of like, well, it's all there. Are you, do, is it been tested that it bugs the customer? They don't want, they don't want to be talked to. It, mm -hmm. But it's not creepy. Um, so I, I think there's there's some ways to go in how tech uh, interface, especially with, with texts, messages, and SMS. And all. Yeah, I, I think that uh, the, the robotics, the automation, the CRM, the use of technology and communications technology, it just means that you have to apply empathy in a different way. Yeah, that's the, yeah. The, well, the old school of that to me at Starbucks is they figured it out uh, in the beginning. They had this, you know, order ahead on the app and they absolutely blew up the baristas mm -hmm. and the people behind the counter were just threatened. And, you know, if you think about it, because we had the syndrome of Baja Fresh, it's like, okay, I waited in line, ordered my food. Now, where's my food? Okay. Chipotle fixed that because you got your food right then. At Baja, no, we cooked it after you ordered it. So they would stand there with their arms folded and just stare at the cooks, right? <laughs> and the cooks hated it. They hated it. Like, you, know, you have 15 people salivating, staring at it. So a couple of things changed. One, the food, that makes food speed really important. Second is people had, once they had uh, blackberries, they're like, okay, food's going to be a minute. And they just got on their blackberry. And so it's kind of like an interesting uh, assuagement yes. of angst when you're in line waiting for food. Yeah. So um, some things are happening for us. But uh, one thing I think is really coming is and we talk, we've talked about this for years in the hotel industry because I do have some hotel background. Is what the uh, dynamic pricing or uh, value engineering uh, on sales, and so you're able to start moving things around, generate higher sales. Well, Mater D's, you think about a Mater D's been doing that for years. You walk in, he sizes up the people who are in line, and he puts them at the really good table, or he puts them at the table by the by the kitchen door. And they say, well, how can I be on that table? He just kind of looks at him and says, well, the table, it is, it is ready for the, a regular guest. And you look at the guy and go, okay, well, I guess so. I guess I can't have that table. Well, what's coming now is, hey, I bought that table at 7.30 on Saturday. I paid extra online to have that table by the window. Mm -hmm. And so I've got a 10% premium. So the restaurant wins. The person gets their table because they're having an event, like you know, an anniversary, engagement, anything. Um, and uh, they want that table. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to monetize that. Just like you want the room overlooking right. the harbor versus the room overlooking the parking lot. That's all coming. And that, to me, is exciting. Yeah. And a, a lot of technology 
from from third party delivery through to like uh, which has been emerging over the last few years a lot of it is really about improving the matching of supply and demand in that way and just the way that you're describing about the supply of tables to the demand for a table by the window yeah. Yeah. This discussion has been amazing we're we're in the last lap in the last few minutes now so i wanted to get some of the to 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 some of the outro questions um greg what's something for somebody who actually lives their life quite so out loud, <laughs> what's something that few people know about you? Living out loud. Well, it is kind of fun to live out loud. Um, I really enjoy gardening. Um, I mean, that's not too surprising. Uh, if you're in the food business, uh, I have a, a garden at home and uh, yeah. I just really enjoy it in, in fruit trees, citrus and the like. For a long time, I enjoyed heliboarding where we would go to what is that? Canada and jump out of... Pro you jump um, out of helicopters? Well, it's snowboarding. On the yeah, 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 you kind of like land a, land a helicopter at uh, 11,000 feet in the Bugaboos and you help you uh, snowboard down and uh, it, it'd be like a 20 minute run and you pick one huge bowl and you could do like five or six runs uh, in the morning and uh, there's no one there, untracked powder to your knees and it, it's the most invigorating uh, snowboarding experience I think anyone could ever have. After after I've overcome the feeling of sheer terror, I'm sure that the adrenaline <laughs> and all of the endorphins would be there. All right, mo moving along. Um, it's amazing. If you had an autobiography, this is a favorite question we like to ask. What would you title your autobiography? Mm. Well, one of my favorite phrases in life is live it up. So I'd probably title it, live it up with an exclamation point. Mm -hmm. Um, cause that it's life. There's not a lot of second chances. If you're not enjoying it, you're not really living it, uh, you know, to a, the fullness that you can, whatever that may be for you. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a challenge for some people to live it up, um, either because of money or disabilities and mm -hmm. the like. So you have to, you know, bring that, that, uh, that kind of balance to it. But now it, it, it's one chance at the party called life and, uh, enjoy it and live it up. So that's how I can do it. Yep. I had an uncle who would tell me, this is not a rehearsal. That's right. So I think that's. Yeah. And especially how you approach people. That's how you got to approach people too. I mean, like to me, I really enjoy people. Um, and I really, uh, I think the, the passion people bring to certain anything, whether it's music or, uh, you know, music astounds me. I play, I play music. And when you see someone really good at it, it, it just blows your mind. Um, but I love the, what, what people with mm -hmm. passion bring to things, which is why I love entrepreneurs, because they bring that passion to something that no one else is doing or hasn't done yet. Yeah, that unique energy is a great place to live. Absolutely. Greg, last one. Um, you have kids, right? They're a little older? I do. Yeah, they're in their 30s, and none of them live at home, so I think I hit the lottery. <laughs> uh, you, well, you, you're a little ahead of me. Um, uh, looking forward to that. But we've had a lot of great insight from you about the industry, about navigating this industry. What do you tell your kids? What have you told your kids about careers and about yeah, life? Yeah, well, I'll separate the two. Uh, on career basis, you know, my basic uh, teachings have been do something you're passionate and good at. And it's got to be the, the confluence of both, passionate and good at. Um, we all know, we've all heard the stories, you're passionate about what you do, you never work a day in your life, all that. Um, but also, does it lead to financial independence? It's a career. And it doesn't necessarily mean that if you're going to be a conductor of an orchestra that you're going to be financially independent. But you're not going to be, you know, uh, 
unindependent either. Um, and then have fun with it. Uh, it just goes by too fast. Have fun with your career, do new things and the like. As far as life's concerned, I think my number one is just be human, be a human and uh, help build society. Number two, you know, you'll give back or build up one of the two. And that's what I've loved about my job uh, as running companies and growth is pretty soon you've got four or 5,000 people in the organization and people who started as dishwashers are now running regions and, uh, and the like. And so th that's exciting to see. And then um, just stay positive and energized, you know, stay positive. Right. Greg Dolahide, we went from getting gas money when you were 14 <laughs> to a uh, billion dollars and thousands of people in your organizations. It's been a trip. Thanks very much for spending the time with us and looking forward to next time. Graham, it's a joy. Great talking to you and look forward to uh, that dinner. Thanks for tuning in to Heroes and Headwinds, a podcast brought to you by the team at the Culinary Edge, produced by Evan Sorenstein and Mackenzie Phelan. Watch your feed for the new episodes to discover which industry leader we're chatting up next.